Welcome to Live Talk, a weekly radio talk style show exclusively produced by Pituitary World News. For all of you who are listening to us, uh, it is uh, uh, great to have you, um, and welcome to another episode of the Pituitary World News Live Talk Show. I have a I'm very excited about it today because uh, I'm I'm flying solo, just like Dr. Blevins did uh, last week. Uh, he is at the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists making a presentation today, so uh, I am very excited to uh, bring you this show because I have two fantastic guests with me. Uh, and I'm uh, looking forward to our discussion. And I'll tell you a little bit about um, what um, what we're going to talk about. But I wanted to tell you also that I was uh, at, we were talking with Dr. Blevins as he was going to the uh, endocrine um, clinical endocrinologist uh, conference, and we did a presentation together. Oh, maybe uh, was three years was the last one that was live. And the interesting thing that we were discussing was that during our presentation, there was probably around 300 endocrinologists in the audience. And um, I wondered, because after the the presentation was over, a lot of people came up to ask questions. And by the questions they were asking, we were able to chat with a few endocrinologists. That for We've calculated for just about half the audience I was the first patient with acromegaly that those endocrinologists had seen. And we forget how endocrinologists are, um, you know, mainly uh, specialists in, in uh, diabetes and, and nutrition and don't cover these rare pituitary diseases. So uh, it just underlines uh, the need um, to do the work that we do and obviously the work that our guests uh, are doing today. So let me just quickly introduce them both. I'm delighted to welcome Jill Sisko from the president of the Acromegaly community and uh, Sharman McGraw from Hormones 411 and the uh, Neuropacific, no, uh, uh, Pacific Neuroscience Pacific Institute. Neuroscience. Thank you. Right <laughs> anyway, so let me tell you a little bit about uh, uh, Charmin first. Uh, one year after Charmin's own pituitary surgery in 2000, she and Dr. Kelly founded the Tumor Patient Support Group at the, Neuro, at the Pacific Neuroscience Institute, which is now the longest-running pituitary disorder support group in the country. Uh, and patients from around the world have benefited from Charmin's expertise and support in person and throughout online forums. Uh, Charmin has a tremendous in-depth understanding of pituitary disorders, not only from being a patient, but also from being involved with hundreds of patients throughout the years. And it's always wonderful to have a talk with Charmin about the issues and the ins and outs of as, of pituitary disease. Uh, 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 Jill, as well, is the president of the Acromegaly community. And this is a, a group that uh, I think the largest group in the world, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, dedicated to help uh, with people with uh, acromegaly. Uh, and through Jill's work, uh, patients have access to resources to help them find endocrinologists and surgeons, neurologists, and many other specialists familiar and able to provide help to pituitary patients. 
additionally, in Jill's group, which is something that's really cool, is that there's there's these smaller groups like a women's only group and a men's group and a nutrition's group. So there's all these specialized discussion groups where people can really learn and get involved. To me, also as a patient, uh, one of the most interesting things it was for me when I first diagnosed was to meet other people with my, I have acromegaly also, as you may know. And and to meet other people and being able to talk about things, it's really uh, very, very uh uh, it's also a kind of emotional. You know, I remember the first time I met with somebody with with acromelia was in Canada at a conference, and uh, it was pretty quite amazing. I'll never forget it. You know, it's really interesting. So, uh, so anyway, well, uh, thank you a ton for doing this for me, and welcome Jill and welcome Charmin. How are you today? Thank you. I'm great. And um, I wanted to point out one yeah. thing with what you were saying, and I'm sure Jill was saying the same thing to herself. When I hear stories that endocrinologists said you were the first acromegaly patient that they saw is not true because they probably saw, I can guarantee you, many. Did they diagnose them? No. But did they see them? Yes. That's a very good point. <laughs> yes. I, yeah. I hear it. It's heartbreaking how often I hear it from yeah. patients that they really have to search out their diagnosis. And, yeah. and you know, with patients with acromegaly, uh, the diagnosis rate, in my opinion, is much less than what it should be. And it just takes so long. And it is such a correct. You know what I found? Doctors have to know about it in order to diagnose it. And the five they spend typically isn't enough in in um, medical school on it. Our experience has been yeah. the same in listening to people and and reading about it and reading the patient stories. It's so, you know, this all all the stories are so similar. And early diagnosis is such a such a huge issue and one that it's you know not not impossible uh, with the right you know awareness programs. And I think I think since you know, obviously I'm not taking credit for any of this, but uh, since we've been publishing and I've been involved in this, we've seen, I think, a lot more awareness of of, of acromegaly. It's still a big job to do, but I think we're making some progress. So, so I have an interesting story. I was doing a talk with one of the institutions and there was um, a cardiology professor that was at a meeting talking about heart issues mm -hmm. and an endocrinologist came up to him and noticed the size of his hands and such and said, you should um, go have a workup for acromegaly. And sure That's enough, a story. Wow. that gentleman did, um, did have acromegaly. He caught it at a micro adenoma state and he wow. had pituitary surgery and it was 100% successful, no damage done to the pituitary gland, and he's five years with no medications even. Wow, that's fantastic. And that is, you know, right there, it is a, a glowing story um, of if everything could go right mm -hmm. for a patient. 
I have a similar story. One of my very best friends, um, she had acromegaly, having a lot of issues, high blood pressure at like 30 something years old. Her whole family is this tiny little Persian, you know, and and then she's tall and different. And, um, and she went to my endocrinologist who's so um, experienced with acromegaly and Cushing's and pituitary disease. And so she's going to see him because he was Persian and she was recommended to him from, from friends. And, but she's going in saying, you know, I've got high blood pressure. I don't know what's wrong with me, blah, blah, blah. Never heard of acromegaly before in her entire life. And the first thing he does is look at her hands. He says, so she's expecting him to say like all the other doctors had said, oh, you know, you're premenopausal or whatever. And he says, well, I'm going to run a test on you because there's a good chance you have a pituitary brain tumor. And so you know, whereas all of us that have like struggled to get a diagnosis were like, yes, I finally got the diagnosis. She's like, what the heck? I didn't come in here for that. And, uh, you know, it was the total opposite. And then when he told her, yes, you have acromegaly, it wasn't until she researched how lucky she was that she was so mild and that the tumor could be removed in 100%. And now it's been like 20 years. She's still in remission and everything's great. But those stories are so far and few yeah. between. But I've, I've heard, you know, presentations where most uh, pituitary tumors of people are discovered by chance. You know, it's somebody else that noticed it. It was in my case, my orthopedic surgeon and my first hip uh, replacement that actually said, you need to have... Have you have you had a checkup for this? You need to do it because I not only see it in your bones, mm. I can tell just by the way you look. Uh, and to me, just like your friend, I was a bucket of cold water. That's the last thing I was expecting in during that meeting. So uh, well, it's pretty amazing. But thank you. you know yes, what's right? also funny though, in my before pictures, right before I was diagnosed, looking at those pictures now, I clearly looked acromegalic. You see it. But I was yeah. told that I didn't oh, yeah. look acromegalic Definitely. enough. <laughs> oh, wow. I know because so many people don't get a diagnosis for yes. 20 or 30 years, you know, I mean, or till it's total yes. disfigurement. Yeah. And yeah. that's and wrong. That's what we, that's I was sitting problem. on on a plane. I was doing a talk someplace and I was sitting on a plane and I was sitting next to a neurocardiologist. And he was talking about what he was doing and I was talking about what I was doing. And he looked at me and he said, but you don't have acromegaly. And I said, yes, sir, I do. And yeah. he looked at me again and he said, you don't look like anything like the textbooks that I've seen. Of course. And that's and the, we've said, talked about it how many times, you know, with a stigma yeah. that's. Uh, I, I yeah. think that is exactly, exactly. why, you know, the, the patients that yes. need to be diagnosed aren't being diagnosed. And. In my right. opinion, we need to do better. Mm-hmm. We we are in 2022. Oh, we, we have, you know, a, a, a better science the than what was here 100 years ago. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and that's very exciting. Start, um, yeah. You know, utilizing it more yeah. in yeah. order to help patients. Yeah. Absolutely. absolutely. 
same with Cushing's and even prolactinoma patients. I, and, and non, you know, all pituitary tumors should be more on doctor's radars. There's no excuses. This is not a disease that we don't have treatments for. And we don't have, you know, there's so many diseases out there that we could, we have no idea where to start to help a patient. We have no, no medical means to help the patient, but this is not one of them. So it's criminal and it's shameful that we have a medical community that has tools to help these patients and to diagnose them in early stages. And they're not, and they're not, and it's simply because they're not educated and that's wrong. If it was due to, we don't have technology, we don't have the medications, we don't have something, then there's an excuse. But when we have highly, highly educated medical professionals and they just choose not to be re-educated or to keep an open mind or to, you know, um, advance their understanding of medicine from when they leave medical school and all these things, then, then that's, yeah. then that's yeah. not well, right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it, it just speaks to the need to meet with these awareness programs in place. So at least people suspect it, you know, suspect absolutely. it early. And I, I, I remember a discussion with, um, Lisa Sanders, who's the doctor that writes the diagnosis uh, story for uh, the New York Times, who did a story on on my case, and he, she was really interested in the fact that the, my primary care doc had missed the, the acromegaly, uh, and and she she said in the, in the article that acromegaly was a disease that you miss once as a physician, and. She had the same story. She had the same example that she had missed a patient and that patient had left. But the interesting part of the story is that her, uh, my doctor, about two months after I was diagnosed, recognized another patient with acromegaly. Imagine the odds. This, this gentleman had come into the office with his dad, and he took one look at him and, at him and said, you know, I think you need to get checked for for this. And the only reason he suspected it is because he had seen me going through, you know, the, that uh, two months prior. It's, it's it's fascinating how that sort of the, the mechanics of that, how that happens. So You anyway, know, on, on the opposite side, though, um, after I was diagnosed, I went back to my OBGYN. And said, "Listen, you know, I never had PCOS. Yeah, I, I, um, you know, my loss of menses was caused by um, acromegaly, and I said, I really feel like you need to know about this because, you know, sure, loss of menses is is a sign of of a pituitary tumor, and you need to be aware of it. And he looked at me and he said, Jill, that is so rare." I will never see another patient with that. I don't even want to hear about it. Yeah, that's, what he yeah said. that's a different, that's a, not the good attitude. <laughs> and, and, but you know what? Listen. Because of that, I never went back to that doctor. Sure. sure. Yeah. Yes. And that's part of what powers you to do what you do today. And that's exactly, I even had a, I had one of my, an, uh, orthopedic surgeon who saw me later after he had been treating me for a torn, um, because I had Cushing's just so if anyone listening knows, I didn't have acromegaly, but I had, you know, our, our journeys are so similar and the diagnoses processes and stuff. But so I saw years later, the orthopedic surgeon, you know, because when he had done a surgery, I had just a torn uh, tendon at my ankle, like a 
like a fit athlete would have. And he kept looking at me going, this isn't possible. Like, I don't know how this tour, I mean, you really need to lose weight. And I'm like, no, something's wrong with me. I'm sick. This is not normally who I am. This weight is, I gained a hundred pounds, you know, and he's staring right at me, does the surgery. And then afterwards I needed a knee surgery and he goes, wow, you look so different. Good for you for losing weight. And I said, no, I had surgery. I had Cushing's disease. And he goes, gosh, you looked like you had Cushing's disease. I said, then why did you not say something? He goes, I'm not an endocrinologist. You were seeing an endocrinologist. I mean, that's not my job. I said, no, it is your job. As a medical professional, had you spoken up and said, there's this thing called Cushing's disease, you look like it. Can you, you know, or have you been whatever? I said, you would have saved myself 10 years of this problem. I said, it is your job as a physician. He goes, well, you were with good doctors that work with, you know, colleagues of mine. I said, you, those are not good colleagues of yours. Those are coworkers and they make mistakes too. And it's your job to speak up, even if you think your good colleague is doing everything. If you see it, speak up. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's it's really interesting. So, well, I was going to ask you the first question, but I think I see... I see it in your passion, what the reason was. So I'm going to ask you to do anyway, but it's pretty evident why you're doing this. So I was going to ask you what made you want to do this, you know, be an advocate, be a patient leader. Um, what, I, I mean, well, for me, I started this tw- and, you know, my journey was, you know, almost 30 30 years now because it took me over seven years to get diagnosed Mm -hmm. with Cushing's. I'd gained a hundred pounds in a year. I was a whole, my hair all fell out. I mean, you know, every, every Cushing's patient has the same story practically, but um, I was so mistreated and I live in a very nice area of Newport beach, California. California has all the, you know, all these great doctors, you know, I had really good insurance PPO. I could go wherever I want. And, you know, you're getting all these suggestions from people you've got, you know, I'd wait six months to see an endocrinologist. So he could tell me to lose weight, you know, and all of these things. And, um, it got to the point where I knew I would die eventually that this disease, whatever it was, was going to kill me. But I was determined not to let the world or my friends or my family think I did it to myself because that's really Mm -hmm. what I was being accused of. And um, eventually when I realized what this disease was and that there was in those days, you know, look, I didn't have Google, you know, we didn't have Google. We didn't have all these things. And, um, so I, w- I knew I had to do something when I was lucky enough to be one of the lucky ones and to get to Dr. Kelly, who, you know, and Dr. Kohan, Pejman Kohan, who's literally saved my life. But I knew that that wasn't enough. That would, would never be enough for me that I had to, I had to wrong, mm-hmm. you know, right or wrong is yeah. what I felt like. And I was, I think because it wasn't just my health that was taken, but my dignity and my um, and my word that I wasn't lying and that people were literally accusing me of doing something when I was I'm such an honorable person and had done so much in my life to to be um, 
this person of integrity. And I think one of the worst things that patients can go through with this is when they're not being heard or even given the benefit of the doubt or that um, accused of being uh, doing this to themselves. I think that's one of the most heartbreaking parts. So that's what really drove me. And then on top of which, once I met Dr. Kelly and, and our team there at, at the Pacific Neuroscience Institute, um, I knew that the universe had a bigger plan for my life and that that I was with the team that actually cared because so many doctors mm. hadn't cared about me and said, just literally treated me horrible. And then there, I met this team that actually cares about pituitary patients and actually wants this to stop and wants to educate and help doctors to start learning more. So that's what dro drove me. It still drives me. And another thing that still drives me is the fact that I'm still getting phone calls, hearing the same story. And it's so frustrating. You know, for me, I think that this shows me also. Years ago, whenever I was first diagnosed, I, I also, I started exhibiting symptoms almost 30 years ago. And it took me 12 to 13 years to get a diagnosis. And whenever I went in for surgery, I came back home. I had had um, surgery in Houston, Texas, which is 11 hours from my home. Mm -hmm. And I had come home and I had had some questions. And the first thing that I did is I went to what would I thought was a protected site. And on that site, the first thing that I read, mind you, just had had pituitary surgery. Hormones are going crazy, I'm yeah. sure. And the first thing that I read was where someone had gotten on and said, big hands, big feet, sounds like a bunch of big fuglies to me. Hmm. And hmm. I cried oh, for two know. days. Sure. The fact that someone would go out I of their way right to be so hurtful and to be so nasty. And I, I immediately turned off my computer, didn't ask the, even ask the question that I wanted to. And I got on two days later and the comment was still there. And so I messaged the admin of that site and said, could you please remove this? This is damaging. And Good for you. He said, oh, sorry, sometimes the crazies get by. And I thought to myself, if I ever manage a support group, I will never allow crazies to get by to hurt our people like that. And that's why no, whenever, no, whenever our right. group, you know, started, um, we interview each and every person. Mm -hmm before we allow them in. And I know that it, you know, some people okay. probably think that we're crazy for doing it. Right now we have over 400 people in the queue, but if they don't answer our questions properly, you know, patient privacy is one of the most valuable things that you can give to patients. Yeah. You know, protecting that privacy and giving them a safe space to talk about their issues. Mm -hmm. And I you know, pray that something like that never happens to someone else. But because of that, it caused me to advocate. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, attending the first acromegaly community conference for years, 
I wouldn't update my, my profile pictures on social media, my space. I hadn't changed in years because I didn't want people to see what I looked like. Yeah. And I'll never forget that first conference being in a room where everyone understood and such acceptance. It gave me the confidence that night to update my profile picture. And it gave me the confidence to say, you know what? If people don't like me because of the way that I look, they're not my friends anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And it says, it says to you. people, it's okay to be the way you are and to yeah. feel the way you feel. And here's some of the people that are going through. I think just some of, from that point of view, it's an invaluable, uh, invaluable uh, uh, service and, and support for people. I think it's, yeah, absolutely. Well, and Jill, you've got what, 3,500 people you're trying to manage on there. You know, that is way too much to not have a, a good handle on your control because that is how crazy sneak through there and, and horrible yeah. things are written yeah. like that. You know, and I have to you know, say throughout the pandemic to... and through throughout, you know, our group, I'm told, is one of the best groups out there because typically there isn't a lot Absolutely. of drama. There isn't, um, you know, and it's because. Well, you work at it. <laughs> yes. It's monitored 24 hours a day. We try to try to keep it acromegaly focused, you know. Things that aren't um, acromegaly focused, you know, we tell the people, you know, this has to be removed. It's not allowed. And, um, you know, some people get upset by it. But at the same time, I have to think of the greater good in everybody. Sure. And, you know, it's not easy being Absolutely. the president of, no. of this organization. But I have to say, I have met some of the finest people in the world because of this condition yeah. and, yeah. and I agree with you. you know, I don't think that anyone asked to be sick and I don't know about Cushing's, but with acromegaly, there's such a stigma attached to it. And, and I just, if, if I could do one thing, you know, through my tenure, through my work, I'd love to remove the stigma because we didn't ask for acromegaly or Cushing's or any of these diseases, just like how a cancer patient doesn't, doesn't, you know, I mean, and it is exactly. just heartbreaking, you know, some of yeah. the stories and I, it's heartbreaking. I remember when I first started advocating and um, similar to you, but in the opposite, I would watch because I, I would get mentioned, you know, you can Google just my first name and I'm the first one on the on there. I mean, not a lot of people can say that, but on Google, if you just Google just my first name, you find me. So I had found an article that was written with on a like a, a fitness site, a workout bodybuilder, and it was about me. And I at first I was like you know, it, it terrified me. What are they saying? And there was a, there was someone that had written about me and about Cushing's disease. And if you're a trainer, these are the things to look for. If you're patient, you know, if you're training someone and they're not losing weight or they're built like this, or you see the moon face and it was really good. And I was grateful they used me. They didn't ask me to use me, but they did. And nothing was offensive to me that they had written, but the chiming in 
on the other people that were reading it was um, at first very hard to read because they were, oh, they're still eating too much. Everybody thinks they have a, a, a hormonal disorder. Everybody thinks that they have a thyroid problem. Everybody, you know, and all these uneducated people were chiming in and I chimed in myself then. And when it came from me, all of a sudden I started getting a lot of apologies. And um, the guy who wrote the article, he chimed in and helped support me, but I didn't, and I, I directly, you know, called out these people and what they are uneducated on. And I said, you can have, you have a right to your opinion, but not at the expense of someone that didn't choose to be sick. There are people that, yes, of course, there's problems with overeating in our country. Of course, there's problems with people smoking. And of course, we have those problems. This is not that. This disease is just as you would get diagnosed with a brain tumor or any kind of disease. We did not choose this. So please keep your uneducated opinions to yourself, you know, and let me tell you, it ended up being a really good discussion. It got passed around to a lot of people and it turned this negative aspect, like you were saying, like changing this perspective. How do we do that? This happened to change those people's perspective. And I really hope that the people on there that read it, that are personal trainers are possibly now seeing that they may have a patient, you know, someone they're training that may Yeah, be and it becomes, a, you know, like you're saying, the perfect teaching uh, opportunity, you know, uh, uh, where yes. a, a discussion like this that sometimes fe- it feels like, you know, it's negative, it becomes a very good vehicle to educate people because people engage, you know, more in the negativity of it sometimes than on the positive things. Exactly. Well, and at first my heart was like, but I knew I had to have thick skin. And I think this is, one of the things that we were going to talk about is what drives us to do this. And I, you know, we, we know we drive, we're driven to be patient advocate um, with um, because we care and we want to make a difference. Absolutely. But we also have to develop thick skin because um, as is, you know, people used to always email Dr. Kelly after surgery and they'd say, Oh, I want to help patients. And then um, and then he'd send them to me and say, oh, meet our patient advocate, Charmin McGraw. She'd love your help, right? And I mean, this happens so much. And then when I'd say what I actually need, you know, people are like, oh, no, I just want to tell my story. And if you have any patients you want me to talk to, I'll just tell them my story. And he said, no, no, mm-hmm. patients have their own story. We, as a patient advocate, we are behind the scenes working our butts off and we have to have very thick skin because it's not easy to do the things we're doing. so many, you know, being out there in the public doing what we do, we kind of become targets, you know, and I, Mm -hmm. I certainly, um, if it were up to me, I would sit in the background, you know, and never be in front of the camera. Um, but it's necessary in order to do our work. Yeah. You can't do it if you, yes. You know, it, it's, it's not always easy. That's for sure. Mm -mm. No, it's a very long, you know, I mean, we've done it all for a lot of years and we're proud of the work, you know, that we do and we should be because it's a lot. 
And um, I always say I helped move the golf ball one inch closer to the sun, you know, and I see now the work that I've done. I hear people quote things that I started and, you know, all this stuff and it cracks me up and I, I could care less that I get any recognition for that. But I do think of the hard work that it took to now start getting um, this in front of the public. You know, for a lot of years, I feel like we sang to the choir and, um, and my goal was never to do that. My goal was to always be in front of the camera and in the front of the media and getting stories written. And with that came a lot of pressure and um, people that don't like what you have to say and, you know, things like that. And, and I, at one point, even I had to get my um, address so it wasn't public, you know, my home address. And these are things if you, you know, patients say to me, oh, I want to do what you do. And I'm like, oh, well, let me tell you how that, how you do that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I'm grateful for it. And I, there needs to be more patient advocates. And, but I think one of the things that I would suggest to patients that do want to help is to collaborate with people like Jill and like JD and like, you know, the Pituitary Network Association or WAPO, um, where the, where the big, the foundation is already there. We don't need to keep inventing the wheel and, and more and more little groups, you know, um, there are things that you can do to actually help somebody that's already got a group going and things like that. And I think those are kind of things that we need to talk about as well yeah. as a patient advocate and not just keep, um, you know, we should be all united yeah. in helping each yeah. other, which we all do. So, I know that we do. Uh, but, let me you know. switch a little bit. And uh, I was interested in learning um, what your feeling is and uh, what do you hear patients talking about today? What are the things that are, are, are keep, keeping patients' attention or, or where, the, where the needs are in terms of how you communicate with, with your constituencies? What do you hear from them? Jill, why don't you take this one? Because you really have a <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of different unmet needs within our community. Um, you know, there's a lot of issues regarding breakthrough symptoms before the next injection cycle, how our biochemical control doesn't match our symptomatic control. There's even issues from, you know, trying to get medications approved by their insurances. And, and I, I so often hear patients, um, you know, pre-authorizations and, and the fight that they have to go through. One of, one of the biggest things that I think is heartbreaking are those patients that are going on Medicare. Mm -hmm. And there used to be, um, you know, foundations that used to have plenty of acromegaly support, um, such as the PAN organization or HealthWell. Yes. And, you know, I'm constantly hearing that those organizations are out of funds and those, those patients, don't have you know, are not yeah. gaining access to our medications because of it. And, you know, we are supposed to be living in the greatest nation on earth. And why Correct. aren't patients having ad, um, access to the medications that they need? Mm -hmm. it, it is just one of the most heartbreaking that's things right. um, that's, that's going on right now, in my opinion, regarding it's, it's just as bad as 
um, you know, the undiagnosed, because these are patients that aren't able yes. to get treatment. The, yeah. It's yeah. knowing well, that you have a ticking time bomb going off in your head and there's nothing that can be done about it. Medications are still very, very expensive and there's ways to help with that. And we're not, there's just not enough, um, people looking at the, the solution for those, you know, patients. I come at it totally different not- though, because, because of the orphan orphan act, you know, I'm just grateful that we even yes. have medications. And, you know, well, I learned yes, through Global exactly. Genes that to get a drug from the thought phase through the FDA cost upwards of $2 billion now. So I understand why the costs are so high. You know, my whole thing is, you know, you don't hear that insurance companies are ever the bad guys. It's bad pharma. And oh, I will speak up about yeah, that. Well, and, and, and pharma has tried to set up you know, systems to try to help the patient pay. And I can tell you over the last five or six years, there's insurance companies that have done everything they can to try to make the patient circumvent those that help. And it's one thing for a patient that might have something that is short, short lived, and it's only once a year or, or once a lifetime. But patients with, with, you know, these rare chronic chronic illnesses, they meet their out-of-pocket year after year after year after year after year. And that puts a huge dent into, you know, the financials. Yeah. Is Um, that one of the things, Jill, that you, the Medicare issue, uh, we hear a lot of it, and we've been working on trying to figure out what can we do you know, that will create, because you can do a lot of wheel spinning on this. And uh, you know, by I that, was, I mean, I, I mean, was so th- thankful for organizations like the PAN yeah. organization and HealthWell. You know, when patients would come to me and say, you know, what am I going to do? Especially when they just started donating towards mm-hmm. Medicare patients. Yeah. But I'm, now, I'm thinking about the things that would create the most impact if, you know, to if you, if we can... Uh, advocate with a group of patients, where do you go? Who do you advocate to? Who are the people that can create some impact? Because right now, the Medicare, it's a tremendous issue. The the co-pays on Medicare for the medications is just astronomical. For for somebody on Medicare to have to pay the amounts that are being quoted, it's it's a sad statement. Of, you know, it's the, caused me to not only try to do work within acromegaly, I've started doing public policy work. Yeah. Because I see these laws and, and such that are hurting patients. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> yes. Yes. I mean, there should be something written for insurance companies like we did with um, that they weren't allowed for yes. pre-existing disease. There should also be, if you are a patient that is qualified for a rare type of medication that is not mainstream, there should be automatic um, help and and affordability for those drugs. 
in other countries, I know, um, you know, some of the drugs don't exist because of the cost and different things, but there are plenty of my, one of my best friends, he is a drug, um, he, that's what he does. He, he, in all the other countries, he's in Europe. Um, he works with the governments on drug pricing and how to save money and all of that. And he, you know, he does approach, you know, some of these American companies and they just don't want any part of it because they have these huge stockholders and things. And really we have to start dissecting on just how absurd it is that a patient, like you're saying on Medicare in the greatest country that we profess to be, cannot afford the proper medication for themselves when it exists. It's not like we have to make it. It's out there. And I mean, if we never bring it to the light of a conversation, it will never be addressed. And just like bringing light that their pituitary tumors are one in five adults, you know, I mean, it, it, we used to, you know, Susan Coleman did such a great job advocating for breast cancer and, you know, it's like a household word. And, and listen, I think pituitary disease should be a household word. Hormonal disorders should be a household word. Getting medication that you need after uh, any kind of surgery should be a household right. word, you know? So I think we're doing the right things by bringing it out in conversations like this, but where do we go next? Like Jill said, she, she's trying to, you know, change the laws and see how they're written and things like that. And that's a tough yeah. job, but we got to do it. We, we've been spearheading some, some at least thinking and some activity in that. And I think that's one of the things that if there's one subject where, um, like organizations like uh, like Jill's or your and yours and us and other group support groups where we can have a uh, a, a, a group approach to this and then to, you know clearly understand what are the things that need to happen for the system to get fixed because the problem obviously is that the system is wrong it's all screwed up and you have way too many people in the middle taking a cut of each, you know, yes. whether it's specialty pharmacies, insurance companies, PBMs, yes. you know, pharmacy, you know, you, you have a mess here yes. that it's just, and, and the government, not, it's not touching it. They're not doing anything. So where do we apply that? I don't understand no. why the government hasn't gotten involved. Yeah. And, and, you know, at the same time, I think years ago, People were so frustrated. They're like, any change would be better. Yeah. I think it's gotten worse. Yeah. I know it's gotten a little worse. I think so. In some areas. And and it's not like, you know, I mean, it it doesn't take a deal. I I was just going to say that some of the profits in these areas are astronomical. It's, you know, you know, when you're looking at an insurance company that's public and this is public, you can go right on there and you've got 10 CEOs making over 10 million a year that is posted. So, you know, that's not all they make because they yeah. don't always list everything they make. And, you know, you you got to say there's a problem. There's a there's a major problem with our country that this is being allowed. But a patient, a, a, you know, someone that cannot work. And, and Jill, will you go over this? So if anyone is listening that doesn't understand really what we're talking about and saying like, well, so I have to pay for my medication. I got to pay 40 bucks for my thyroid medication. 
I want them to understand the dollar yeah. amounts we're talking about here. We are not talking no. about a $5 copay. We are not talking about a $100 copay. So, Jill, so how much are we talking? Octreotide-based therapy is the negotiated rate with, with insurance companies is $5,800 a month. And that is our cheapest. A month. Um, some of our medications run 25000 a month. And Jill, how many patients do you know after surgery, even a successful surgery, that still have to be Great on medication? Most. Um, because acromegaly right. isn't diagnosed early. You know, unfortunately, I, I know far too many that, you know, patients, especially post-surgery, so often come in and say, I just had surgery. My doctor said he got it all. And I'm going to go back to living my yes. normal life. And I'm always, you know, hopeful for those people, but it is right. so heartbreaking. But. So often within six months, those same patients are, my numbers have gone up. I, I have to go on medication. Can you tell me about medication? So, but to, but to be specific, Charmin, in a medication that costs at retail sixteen, seventeen thousand dollars, let's say, for a thirty day, for a month, for a thirty day a supply, month. which is not unusual in the in the pituitary world, mm -hmm. uh, right? A Medicare uh, pay, pay first copay will be around twenty six hundred dollars because of the donut hole, and each month that that copay is around $600, give or take. That's the math. That's yeah, the math. Yeah, and those are people on, on Medicare Correct. that are on fixed incomes. Medicare, that obviously yes. are on Medicare because they can't work yes. or they're elderly or they're on a fixed income. The same with the drugs for um, Cushing's disease. I mean, it's upwards of 5000 a month um, at, and more. You know, I mean, somewhere as much as $15,000 a month. and. And now we have pills, which are better than injections, you know, in some cases and um, the, the cost, but a, a pill alone could be $600 copay yeah. or more, you know, and, um, and so a lot of patients go ahead and use a drug that's been around a long time, you know, um, bromocryptine or something, but it's not even, it, it's not the drug they need to be on or that would, yeah. is really going to help them. So why I think are we allowing you know, I think this, this is one of those subjects that, I mean, I'm, obviously uh, that need need attention but it's one of those things that really requires some thinking on, on strategically how we're going to go about this from the patient perspective to apply the correct pressure somewhere so things can can get better and it's not an easy job that's that's for sure but i think no, it no. starts it starts with thinking about it and it starts with pointing it out and trying to get people involved to you know, to move the needle. I think, and I think a little movement right. may make a huge impact. You don't need, you don't need 180 right. degrees. Maybe you need, you know, it. 10 degrees, a change. So to make right. things, you know, relatively better. You um, know, anyway. it was one of these public policy meetings that I was at that I learned about the, the patient focused drug development program. Yeah. If I was going to ask you. been attending that. You know, um, I publicly stood up because I was hearing all of these different rare diseases yeah. say, you know, give us any kind of medication. 
and and we'll do clinical trials for it because we have nothing. So why don't you explain and, a little bit the the P, the PFDD? That's what yeah, you're referring to. The, correct. The patient. Correct. So that this is an FDA program to to include the voice of the patient in 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 the uh, in the drug development or thera- therapy development process. And why don't you tell us? Yeah, a little bit about how that worked for the acromegaly community. Well, what what happened at this meeting is um, when I was hearing this from all these others, I stood up and said, listen, we have existing therapies within my disease, but there are true issues within those therapies. Mm -hmm. And afterwards, I had um, some people come up to me and say, we think that that your organization would be perfect for one of these meetings. Yeah. And, and being a leader of so many patients um, within, you know, uh, a private group, you know, one of the major things that we hear is, yes, my levels are within the normal range, but I still feel horrible. Yeah. So, so you had this meeting with the FDA and I know we covered it and there was a lot of patients that participated and, and there were some really interesting findings when you read the report. It's, I want to say, 80-some pages long. Uh, but 93. I think... 90, okay, <laughs> 90. But I think it's worth wow. reading every bit of it. And uh, mm-hmm. I think what we'll do is we'll put a link to it uh, on the on the podcast, when this recording, when people listen to it, uh, if they miss the live show, so they can take a look at it. Uh, there's it's some very, very interesting findings. Um, it, it really looked in-depth into the patient experience of yeah. living within acromegaly with the different medications, you know, the long um, term to diagnosis, it really looked like an overview. And it said, you know, basically, what could we be missing? What do we need to focus on in the future to make things better for these yeah. patients? Well, it's interesting because it clarifies for people that are looking at, you know, let's say researchers or new drug, looking at, you know, uh, a, a very good description of what the unmet needs are. And... So I knew that this would happen due to, I had done an ACRO um, questionnaire, and the ACRO QOL, which is commonly yeah. used within clinical trials. We had over 350 patients within mm-hmm. our group fill out the ACRO QOL. And, um, you know, for instance, the, the statement, I feel ugly, 80.3% completely to moderately agreed with that statement. Mm-hmm. Um, I get depressed. 85.6% said that they are always to sometimes depressed. Yes. That's a big number. I look awful in photographs. 83.9% said that they completely agreed to moderately agreed. Um, I have trouble carrying out my usual activities. 87.8% said always to sometimes. You know, you mm-hmm. have to, we had over 350 patients, per, yeah. you know, participate in this. These are big wow. numbers. When some parts of my body, nose, feet, hands, et cetera, are too big, 90.5% agree to moderately agree. I have trouble doing things with my hands. 78.8% said always to sometimes. 
this illness affects my performance at work or doing my usual task. 84.8% said that it always to sometimes affects their performance at work. Yeah. My joints ache. 93.4% said always to sometimes. These are patients that are getting treatment. Yeah. Um, I feel tired. 96.7% said always to sometimes they're tired. And when you sit and you think about it, and Jill, when just... every cell in the body is working harder than what it should to process that the extra growth hormone, it makes sense as to why mm -hmm. people are so fatigued. Um, and Jill, do you know on average uh, people taking the survey um, that they had had surgery and that were in technically remission? Do you know the average or were these patients of all different these stages? These were patients correct? in all different stages, but most patients find us post-surgery mm -hmm. because they're looking for answers because yeah. they've had surgery and they still feel bad. I feel like a sick person. 72.8% yeah. completely to moderately agreed. The physical changes brought on by this illness are dominating my life. 70% completely to moderately agreed. This was heartbreaking enough to me to say something more needed to, needed to be done. And so that's why we applied for this ELPFDD meeting with the FDA to try to look at it. And, and in my opinion, one of the biggest findings that came out of it, that now we have tangible evidence. So we ask our patients, um, you know, are you considered in biochemical control? Are your numbers within range for your, for your gender and age? And 22% um, said always. 35% said most of the time, and 19% said sometimes. So then we came, came back right after, and we asked, you know, um, do you consider yourself in symptomatic control? Yeah. And those That's numbers dropped drastically. It went, the always was 2% from 22%. Wow. Um, wow. Basically, there were more that said 51% said, said um, rarely to never. There was more that, that is rarely to never symptomatically controlled than what there are controlled. And that tells me right there, we need to do more yeah. to help patients. I, 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 yeah, found, it, I found the, uh, the, item, the key items in the report there's a section that uh, talks about the key themes that emerged from the, and there was two or three that we all knew, but it was interesting to see it, you know, how prevalent these are. Uh, the, the, the profound mismatch between the biological uh, control and the way people feel mm -hmm. and uh, the uncontrolled symptoms that negatively affect quality of life constantly. But I think for Cushing's it's very, very similar. And, uh, most patients living with acromegaly have a very long diagnosis journey, 
you know, this is not just one or two people. This is the yeah. majority of people. Yeah. Uh, these are yeah. not unique. We think right. when we get diagnosed, we think our our story is unique. No, it isn't. It's everybody goes through the same thing, you know, so. Uh, unless, but, unless they exactly. end up getting it really, right. really early. Yeah. And, and so, most people are just early. Yeah. So early but that doesn't yes. happen for the majority of people. Yeah. So what is the next no. step on this, Jill? What, what do we... You know what do you what are your thoughts on how do you take now all this great information and and you know what do we what do we do with it? Well, um, with the the patient focused drug development program, the voice of the patient report every yeah. single medication that will be put in front of the FDA. Now they'll have to look at this report and say, does this meet what the patient needs, which which is helpful. Um, you know, we use all of this work to help educate people. Next yes. week in Milpitas, um, California, we're having our our patient conference. Um, you know, I'm excited. We should, yes, and we and should encourage we should encourage people to. You'll you'll post a virtual link to it. Also, we will, so you can see if you can't make it to uh, to see it virtually. That would be you yeah, know absolutely one of the most powerful things that a patient can do for themselves is to educate themselves. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. With Correct. proper information yes. from Correct. good sources. And we bring in, um, we combined, you know, we have a bunch of this time, many times we we've um, combined with Charmin's uh, team. Um, but this time, because we're further North in California, um, we've combined with yes. um, some physicians from Stanford and um yes was larry katz nelson yes. in part yes. of that group yes yeah good um good. and dr jfm um you yeah. know we bring good. in some of the some of the best physicians in the world to teach patients as if they were physicians on how and let me bring to that, a, make a quick note so patients know so so these are doctors that do high volume that they see a lot of patients, their their experience is going to be so much different than someone else that may be teaching at a you know may have to do a seminar on on something. But you have to be with yeah. these they gave such a better understanding. Experience is critical. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And so. you see patients that go to these high volume um, facilities, patients that that see. Uh, physicians that have a better understanding typically have a better quality of life because it's managed better. Life, exactly, yes. exactly. It's managed much better. Yes. We also bring in we also bring in mental health counselors, which we have Perfect. because um, we have a exactly. women's group, a men's group, and a family mm -hmm. and loved ones group. And they'll we'll, 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 oh, we have awesome. um, licensed marriage and family therapists that will do group counseling in each of the groups. And that, in my opinion, is invaluable. Invalu absolutely. Invaluable. Being a female, yes. I'll never, that's kind of what got me to um, open up myself is sitting in that private group with just the women saying, you know, I don't recognize myself. And the, you know, right. the support, the group counseling was just uh, life changing. I 
I honestly believe every pituitary patient needs a therapist, a counselor, whatever you want. I mean, some need psychiatrists as well, but and I, I, not because they're crazy, but because this is a very difficult diagnosis and it's a very stressful situation for family members. Not everybody can be your therapist or your friend. You need a professional. I, I want to I thank you both because I can't believe this hour has just flowed. Bye, and we're almost at the at the hour. Uh, I can't tell you how enjoyed how much and enjoyed this. I think there's so many other things that we could talk about. I left a bunch of things on the list that are things that I I wanted to talk about, uh, but I think we touched on the important things. And I I want to hold you both to come back so we can finish this for people. I think uh, we're going to encourage people to to call in and uh, uh, and uh, 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 next time. So hopefully, you know, we can get some some uh, feedback from from the audience. So, well, it was my pleasure for sure, and I always love seeing all of you. You know, the three of you are my. Yeah. Three I have my to say people. that I remember very clearly. I think it was ten years ago at a nor at a global genes meeting mm-hmm. when we met, and I have a yes. I think Wasn't I'm going to put that Beach. photo in uh, on the on the story because it's great. That's that shot we got. So anyway, oh, so thank you. you. Know, it's, it's always an honor to get to work with with um, you three. Thank um, you. Um, you guys, I I thank you. You know, Charmin, you are my inspiration, and 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 JD, oh, I have such respect for all that you do. Thank and you. Thank you. Our organization. Um, is so blessed by the work that you do and you have helped so many people around the world. Um, Thanks for saying that. I think it's a, it's a team effort, but thank you so much for saying, well, thank you. You guys have a great evening and we'll see you soon. Thank you for joining us. You have been listening to Live Talk, an exclusive production from Pituitary World News. Pituitary World News is a nonprofit organization supported by a variety of organizations, foundations, and from people like you. We encourage you to participate by joining us to spread the word about pituitary disease. And if you'd like to donate, please go to pituitaryworldnews.org and click on the Donate button. Thank you, and thank you for listening.